Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, the podcast that breathes new life into the greatest tales from cycling history. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In this episode, we roll back to Audrey van der Poel's victory at the 1986 Tour of Flanders, where he would take the title 34 years before his son, Mathieu. In doing so, he would also deny Sean Kelly glory in the only monument that would elude the Irishman during his illustrious career. Audrey van der Poel found the 2020 Tour of Flanders more stressful than the edition he won. Not only was the outcome out of his hands, but the 61-year-old was also working for his son's Alperson Phoenix team, giving out spare wheels and musettes along the route, all while trying to keep track of Matthew's performance. He was in front with two other really good riders, van der Poel says recalling the winning move that also featured Wout van Aert and world champion Julien Alaphilippe, who crashed out dramatically with 35 kilometres remaining after colliding with a motorbike. OK, one fell down, then it was a battle between the two of them, and it was the battle everyone wanted to see. Van Aert had won his first monument at San Remo, so, for Mathieu, after the hard work he did, it was very nice to win his first big monument. And for me, it was extra special, because I won that race too. It was the 6th of April 1986 when van der Poel Sr. won the Ronda, the Dutchman pulling off a surprise to dart past Ireland's Sean Kelly and triumph from a four-man break in Meerbecker. It was the second of three occasions in the space of four years that Kelly would finish runner-up in Flanders, the only one of cycling's five monuments missing from his otherwise impeccable Palmares. If Kelly was ever going to win the Tour of Flanders, 1986 was the year. The then 29-year-old was at the peak of his powers and firing on all cylinders, having already won a fifth consecutive Paris-Nice crown and a maiden Milan-San Remo title. 
but form is not the only factor in a bike race. If anything, Kelly can now readily admit that he was overconfident that day. Audrey van der Poel, on the other hand, had the form, but no wins to back it up. He had hit double figures in his win tally the year before, but the Dutchman had yet to get off the mark as the Belgian cobbles campaign got underway. Top 10 finishes in eight races, including Milan-San Remo and the three days of Dipan, confirmed his good condition. But as April came, there was something missing. That year, in 1986, all the races I did, I was in great shape, he says. But I didn't get any victories. So it was a case of fingers crossed and wait for the first victory to come. Riding for the Dutch Quantum Harland team, van der Poel was no Sean Kelly. Heck, he wasn't even an Eddie Plankart. But he was a solid all-rounder who had made his name finishing runner-up behind Stephen Roach in Paris-Nice in 1981, the year before Kelly started his seven-year run in the Race to the Sun. Top tens in Paris-Roubaix, Liège-Baston-Liège and two podium finishes in the Giro de Lombardia underlined van der Poel's versatility in the big one-day races. If Kelly was Champions League pedigree, then his Dutch counterpart was definitely a Europa League regular. Kelly, by contrast, entered the 70th edition of the Ronda with five career monuments to his name, having won Lombardia twice, Roubaix, Liège and, just weeks earlier, San Remo, outfoxing Greg LeMond and Mario Becher on the Via Roma as van der Poel came home in the chasing group, 23 seconds down, to take seventh. Since winning on the Italian Riviera, Kelly's packed schedule had seen him come runner-up in both the Criterium International and the Three Days of Dipan, before keeping Cass, his Spanish sponsor, content with a victory in the Tour of the Basque Country. Kelly was a dying breed of cyclist who, in the mould of Merckx, pretty much rode every race to win. The Irishman would top 30 wins that season, despite spreading himself thin over the course of the year in what he would later describe as a totally crazy schedule. It was a programme dictated in large part by his faithful manager, the aviator sporting Jean de Gribaldi, with his celebrated mantra, if you're not racing, you've got to train, so you might as well be racing. The punishing philosophy helped Kelly become one of the defining riders of the 80s the Irish all-rounder capable of winning both monuments and grand tours, all while securing seven successive Paris-Nice triumphs on the Côte d'Azur. Di Gribaldi wasn't the only person to blame for Kelly's hectic race schedule. For three of his most successful years, Kelly rode for Caz, the Spanish fizzy drink producer that stepped in to replace Skill as the team's main sponsor. Kelly's heart might have been in the cobbled classics, but the company paying his wages was more motivated by plastering their name across the Spanish season, as Kelly explains in his autobiography, Hunger. I remember the big boss, Luis Gnor, saying to me, Tour of Spain, Tour of the Basque Country, Catalonia, if you can win those races, I'm happy. The classics are always in cold weather, and the Belgians only drink beer, not soft drinks. But having finished second in the 1984 edition of the Ronda, 
Kelly winning the sprint in the chasing group, 25 seconds behind solo winner Johan Le Mertz of the Netherlands. The man of the moment was dead set on performing well over the bergs before jetting out to Antzuola in northern Spain for the first stage of the Basque Tour the very next day. If reputation and form together combined to make Kelly the clear favourite as 175 riders rolled out of St. Nicolas for the Ronda, his build-up had also been near flawless too. Then again, Van der Poel wasn't exactly in bad nick either. In stark contrast to the previous edition, one with a solo attack by the Belgian national champion Eric van der Raden in abysmal conditions, the weather was dry and mild for the 1986 race. 13 cobbled climbs featured in the 274km route, and an early move saw the Belgian Mark van Giel build up a lead of 10 minutes. Once he tired, van Giel was joined by Dirk de Mol, with the duo's lead down to just three minutes after the first test, the Mollenberg. Both riders were reeled in one after the other once another Belgian, Panasonic's Eddie Plancart, upped the tempo on the long grind of the Eau de Quaramont. A select group of around 20 riders formed in pursuit of Plancart, with Kelly in his loud yellow Kaz jersey very much the driving force. Soon, Plancart was back in the leading group alongside three Panasonic teammates, including the defending champion van der Raden, as scores of reinforcements managed to bridge across to swell the numbers. It was Panasonic's Jos Lamertink who drove the pace ahead of an attack by van der Raden on the Paterberg, which stretched out the peloton once again. Then came the infamous Koppenberg, onto which van der Raden rode with a few seconds advantage over the main field. It was here that a first proper selection was made, and here, on the narrow, steep farm track, where the winner-elect suffered a not insignificant setback. I had to run up the Koppenberg because someone crashed in front of me, van der Poel recalls. I couldn't get back up on the bike, so I had to finish the climb by running. The incident occurred as Plankart and Kelly led the chase on van der Raden, forcing a response from the likes of Mark Sargent, Steve Bauer, Johan van der Velde and Greg LeMond, the young American who had made ripples by finishing a runner-up in the previous year's Tour de France and World Championships. As the pursuing pack bunched up like an accordion when the gradient pitched up, a Peugeot rider slipped and fell across the road, forcing everyone behind to slam on the brakes. A handful managed to swerve around the obstacle, but van der Poel was one of several big names to be caught on the wrong side of what caused a collective shouldering of bicycles, as the Ronde van Vlaanderen temporarily became a cyclocross race on the Koppenberg. The first information we got a few kilometres later was that there was a group ahead with ten riders. Ten good riders, says van der Poel, who was riding in the pack with, among others, the 1981 winner Henny Keeper, the triple Paris-Roubaix champion Francesco Moser and the double Tour de France winner Laurent Fignon, who, ten days later, would go on to win La Flèche Wallonne. With three Panasonic riders, van der Raden, Van der Velde and Plankart, and two transatlantic La Vie Claire stars in Bauer and Le Monde, 
It was a strong group of seven that had formed from the melee, with three more joining shortly after the Tyneberg. The problem in the first group, van der Poel recalls, was that one team had three or four riders in it. The gap was around 40 seconds, but it was never bigger than 1 minute 10 seconds. I felt quite quickly that there was something not good in the first group, otherwise the race was over at the Koppenberg. He was right. Plankart's rear wheel had punctured, and with no team car in sight, he had to wait for some shoddy mechanical assistance from the neutral service car before being forced to close a 45-second gap. Teammate van der Velde eased up to help pace Plankart back ahead of the Leiberg, with 40-odd kilometres remaining, shortly before Le Monde put in a softener as part of a La Vie Claire 1-2. The American led onto the Berendrie section and, once again, it was left to utility man van der Velde to neutralise the threat. With Le Mans' cameo on the front over, teammate Bauer and a revived Plankart combined ahead of the 11th test of the day, the mighty Moor van Gerardsbergen. It was on the mythical climb up to the chapel where the checks that Plankart's tired legs were trying to cash bounced. Canada's Bauer rode clear of a physically bankrupt Plankart with a decent 50-second lead over the summit on the main chasers, driven by Kelly after the break had been all but mopped up by the pack. Bauer's lead was still 40 seconds after the last major test, the Bosberg, with 20 kilometres remaining. With Plankart swallowed up, some riders started to test their legs, including Kelly and the persistent Le Monde, as well as the former world champion Claude Criquillion and his Hitachi teammate Jean-Philippe Vandenbrander. And it was here that Audrey van der Poel began to come to the fore, the Dutchman having kept a low profile since his jog up the Koppenberg. One by one they came back, and, after the Murr of Gerardsbergen, there was a small group in front with Kelly, Bauer and Vandenbrander, he recalls. I think with around 8 to 10 kilometres to go, I was the only one who could close the gap. That's a short way of telling you that I was the strongest. Indeed, no sooner had van der Poel managed to join Kelly and van den Brander than this trio became a leading quartet after Bauer was reabsorbed on the outskirts of Meerbecker with 7 kilometres to the finish. The raft of quality riders behind meant there was no let-up for the leaders, no chance to play cat and mouse on the run-in. But it was also quite clear that one of these four would end up winning Flanders for the first time in their career that very afternoon. Watching the race back today, one observation it's hard not to make is just how strong Kelly looked. In fact, such was the calibre of the seven-man breakaway that formed after the Koppenberg, it's a marvel that it did not go the distance. Perhaps had Plankart not punctured, or Kelly been more clinical, or if North American teammates Lamond and Bauer had combined together with greater belief and more maturity, it might just have done so. But in Kelly's defence, what he had up his sleeve was his staying power, his excellent form, and his fast finish. He knew he could beat all the others in a sprint. His autobiography, however, raises another dynamic. 
that Kelly was riding the Ronda with one eye on Roubaix. In Hunger, Kelly admits that he offered to help out van der Poel in return for the Dutchman returning the compliment a week later over the cobbles of northern France. Not only was the Dutchman in desperate need of a win, a victory in Flanders, as opposed to in France, offered his quantum team, a Low Countries DIY chain, more bang for their buck. The pact looked immaterial for a large part of the race, what with Kelly in the break and van der Poel leading the chase behind. But it was perhaps activated once the two men found themselves in the leading quartet as they approached the finish, since Kelly, for someone who was the clear favourite, certainly seemed to do the lion's share of the work. That said, Kelly also insisted in hunger that, once the final sprint started, both riders gave 100%. And when quizzed for this podcast about any ostensible collaboration, the pair played any arrangement down. I can remember a lot about that race, primarily because of the sprint, because I was in the leading group, Kelly admits. It was one of the years that I was feeling really good in the final of the Tour of Flanders. With around 25 kilometres to go, as the leading group formed, I remember speaking to van der Poel and agreeing that we'd ride together and see what happened. For his part, van der Poel was relieved twice over. First, that he managed to close the gap on Kelly and van den Brander, and second, that Bauer was caught. Steve had been on the front for a very long time, and we knew that we had to get Steve back, or the race would be over, he says. I knew that, and Sean knew that too. I felt really good that I wasn't just riding into the finish alone, behind the leaders. When I joined the group, I did my work, but not at all at 100%. Maybe around 89%, you know? Because we were close to the finish, so I don't think we calculated. But the first following group wasn't that far behind. If the results seemed predictable for those watching at home, it did so too for the man in yellow, who everyone felt would soon join the illustrious club of riders to have won all five of cycling's monuments. Even so, the sight of Kelly leading the quartet onto the home straight before preempting the final battle by launching his sprint with 200 metres remaining did raise a few eyebrows. To be honest, Kelly says, I felt so strong that I didn't feel like anyone could beat me that day. I kept riding, and in the final kilometre, I was pulling that group along, really keeping the pace high. Making it difficult was my tactic. We came into Meerbecker and that run to the line and I remember saying to myself that I'd just ride on the front and then wind up the sprint, show them how to sprint uphill. I think it was around 180 metres that I started to wind up the sprint and I felt like nobody would be able to come around me. But in the final 20 or 30 metres, I started to get the big legs and the lactate was building up. Slowly, I was starting to get the bigger legs as I was getting closer to the line. Then I could see van der Poel, who was just coming up by me in slow motion. And then he just came around me in the final few metres. As the tiring Kelly faded, van der Poel veered to the left, taking the wind out of the sails of the unfortunate Bauer before powering past to take the win by a bike length. Would a race jury today have taken a second look? Perhaps. But the result stood. 
As the Dutchman celebrated with an upward scoop of his arms, Kelly took second ahead of Van den Brander, with Bauer, the first Canadian to finish in the top ten at Flanders, missing out on the podium place his combative ride probably deserved. On a blog entry about the Tour of Flanders on his website, Sean Kelly looks back at that race in 1986 and asks himself why Audrey van der Poel won. Because on the day I wanted to win, but he really, really wanted it more, is his conclusion. It's a fair assessment, but one that doesn't tell the whole story. Kelly undoubtedly sensed, aged 29 and approaching his pomp, that he would have had many more chances of adding a Ronda trophy to his crowded mantelpiece. But he also clearly felt, as he approached the finish line in 1986, that the wait was over, that the job was done. I certainly believe that I'd have other chances over the years to win Flanders, but on that occasion, I was confident that I could win in the sprint by keeping the race pace high and keeping everybody else under pressure, Kelly says 34 years later. I reckoned I could beat everybody in the sprint. But that's the time to make mistakes, when you're really riding well and feeling so strong. That's exactly when you lose races. If I had played it a bit more, not taken out the front and made the sprint, came around a bit, then I think it could have been different. Kelly admits that he knew both Bauer and van der Poel were the danger men. But I think the way I was feeling in the final kilometres I felt I had them on the ropes, he says. That was the mistake I made with van der Poel, who was very experienced, very cute in those scenarios. I probably gave him too much and I paid for it in the final metres before the line. That's something, you know, in hindsight, you realise just after the race. Maybe years after, I say, if only I had ridden differently, I think I could have won that race. But hindsight is a great thing. If winning the Ronda was the greatest success van der Poel had tasted in his career to that point, the rangy Dutchman did not take any particular pleasure in beating Kelly, whom he considered to be a close colleague and a very good friend. Of course I was happy that I won the race, but not especially that I beat Kelly, he says. He was certainly more of a favourite than I was, but I think Shawnee's only mistake that day, especially in the final, was that he was quite sure he was going to beat the three of us. Kelly already had 11 wins to his name that season. That was 11 more than his three rivals put together. Put simply, he underestimated van der Poel, and for that, he was punished with a second place he had always regret. So, what happened next? Of course Kelly was disappointed, van der Poel says. But when we next met at Paris-Roubaix the following weekend, he said, OK, today we have another chance. And again, we were four in the front. That time, he beat me. But before the hell of the North, Kelly had Kaz and his contractual obligations to consider. There was no time to cry over spilt Belgian milk. And with van der Poel celebrating his win with a leffe or two, Kelly had a plane to catch to Bilbao ahead of the opening stage of the tour of the Basque Country the very next morning. Maybe if there had been someone on the team to take on the stage races, it would have relieved the pressure a bit, Kelly told Pro Cycling magazine in 2016. 
Given his Sunday exertions over the Belgian bergs, you can forgive Kelly for being a little leggy in the opener, the Irishman coming home in eighth. In stage two, he finished behind compatriot Martin Early in second place before returning to winning ways in stage three. He would add two more stages to his name before the weekend, taking the general classification in the process. A flight back to Belgium and a drive down to Compiègne meant King Kelly could then grace the Queen of the Classics. In filthy conditions, a quartet of Kelly, van der Poel, Rudy Darnens and Ferdy van den Halter came to Roubaix together for a finish that, for the first time since 1943, did not take place in the velodrome. Instead, the finish line was outside the local La Redoux clothes factory outlet. When van den Halter attacked with a kilometre to go and Darnan's legs turned to jelly, Kelly, mindful of what had happened the previous Sunday, sat tight and let van der Poel take up the chase. It was then the Dutchman who launched his sprint early, with Kelly easing past his rival for the sixth of his nine monument victories. For me, it was always better to be second or third behind Kelly than a rider like van den Halter. Van der Poel told Pro Cycling three decades on. Kelly's San Remo-Roubaix double in 1986 was something only achieved once before, by Belgium's Cyril van Howert in 1908, and once since by Germany's John Degenkolb in 2015. Adding Flanders would have given Kelly an unprecedented triple, and would have seen the Irishman join Belgians Rick van Looy, Eddie Merckx, and Roger de Vlaaminck in the Hall of Fame as a winner of all five of Cycling's monuments. There was no respite for Kelly once he had held his cobblestone trophy aloft. Three days later, he was at the start of La Flèche Wallonne before taking on Liège-Baston-Liège the following weekend and then the Vuelta España, which started two days later. There, he won two stages, finished third overall, and took the points classification. Kelly later skipped that year's Tour de France, not because of his demanding schedule, but owing to a serious crash in the final stage of the Tour de Suisse. He bounced back from his unplanned period of rest to come fifth in the world in Colorado Springs. He then won the Tour of Catalonia and his home Tour of Ireland before capping a frightfully long season as bridesmaid in Lombardia. Kelly's ubiquity in the pro peloton and versatility over all terrains made him something of an example among his peers, with Eric van der Raden telling Pro Cycling, If you wanted to win at that time, you had to be better than Sean Kelly because he was there at every race. He was never a lazy rider. Get in a break with him and he rode. He didn't look around to see who else was there. Kelly returned to Flanders in 1987 and finished runner-up once again, this time one minute down to the winner, Claude Croquillion. In 1988, he finished fourth, pipped by van der Poel again, this time in the sprint for the final place on the podium. Looking back, did the 1986 edition he lost to van der Poel represent his best ever chance at winning the one major classic that eluded him? When you look at the final kilometres of that race, then it was definitely my best chance, especially given the way I was feeling 
the way I thought the other riders were feeling, Kelly admits. Crackelion's victory, however, provided Kelly with a whole new raft of tactical regrets. I remember when we were in the final 25 kilometres, and I was the only one from my team, he says. Crackelion said to me, I'm going to attack. And I said, if you attack, I'm not going to chase. There were three or four Panasonic guys, and I thought that would suit me because they would chase and I would get a free ride, then maybe mop up in the sprint and win it that way. But Crackelion attacked and he was allowed to take 30 seconds. Then Panasonic started riding, but they didn't have enough to take him back. We came to the sprint for second place and I beat van der Raden, and you start thinking then, if I had done things differently... But that's after the race, and when you analyse, it's easy to come up with ideas of what you should or should not have done. Further monument wins would come for Kelly in 1989 at Liège, 1991 Lombardia, and 1992 with San Remo again, while Kelly also won the Vuelta in 1988, the same year he secured his seventh successive Paris-Nice win. As for van der Poel, his form continued into the Ardennes that spring, with a third consecutive monument podium, finishing second behind Moreno Argentine in Liège, following his victory in Flanders and third place in Roubaix. The Dutchman never won the Tour of Flanders again, but he did add La Doyenne to his Palmares in 1988, outsprinting Belgium's Michel Dernies and Scotland's Robert Miller in Liège for a victory that he felt was maybe a little bit more special than his Flanders win. With all those climbs, many people thought it would be too hard for me, he says. But that year, I was good. I followed the best climbers of that moment. I got in the breakaway, and then, at the end, it was quite easy, because I was in front with Miller and Dernies. Normally, in the sprint, that shouldn't be a problem for me but I was not in the same position as Sean was in Flanders in 1986. That's to say, I wasn't too confident I was going to win. I was very careful to go not too long, not too short, just at the right moment. It was a little bit easier because it was a very hard and cold day, and normally in those conditions, I'm at my best. When I was in a position to win a big race, I often won that race. For me. It was very special to win Liège-Baston-Liège. When Mathieu van der Poel edged Wout van Aert to win 2020's rescheduled Tour of Flanders in a photo finish at Udenada, he too was wearing the number 51 on his jersey that his father wore when he zipped past Kelly three and a half decades earlier. The nail-biting victory over his long-standing Belgian rival, which came less than an hour after world champion Julien Alaphilippe's dramatic collision with a motorcycle, made the van der Poels the first father and son duo to win the same monument. If you factor in the Milan-San Remo victory of the late Raymond Polydor, Audrey's father-in-law and Mathieu's grandfather, then you have three generations of monumental winners. Father and son winning the same races is something special, Audrey says. We also both won the Amstel Gold Race. There are still some races for him to win that I won, 
but he will win many more races that I didn't win, that's for sure. That expanding list now includes Strada Bianchi, although the White Road Classic in Tuscany, which many feel should be declared the sixth monument, was admittedly not around in Ardry's day. Watching Van der Poel Jr. win the Ronda last year, Sean Kelly enjoyed seeing the son of his good friend Ardry, now one of cycling's hottest properties, open his monument account after being able to do what Kelly failed to do, lead out from the front on the home straight of the Ronda. It was amazing to see Mathieu van der Poel win last year to follow in his father's footsteps, but it doesn't make it any easier for me, Kelly Ruse. When you look at my Palmares and finishing three times second, yeah, it's just something is missing there. There were occasions when I think I was good enough to win it, but if I had ridden better tactically, then I could have won the Tour of Flanders. A win in Flanders might leave a huge void on his record, but there was another one-day race that also eluded King Kelly, that which would have enabled him to wear the rainbow bands for a year. To make the call between Flanders and the World Championships, it would always be the World Championships, he says. Everybody would want to win that. But Flanders is one of the great monuments, and it's something missing for me. That's definitely one that hurts, because I was good enough to win certainly on one occasion, and maybe on more than one occasion. If I had only played it a bit differently tactically, then possibly I could have won the Tour of Flanders. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete in the queue for a COVID vaccination. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode when we roll back to the 2004 Paris-Roubaix, the race that saw Swedish steamroller Magnus Backstead upset the odds on the cobbles for the biggest win of his career. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.